The text for our sermon this morning is Job chapter 2, verse 13, but I want to read from verse 11 to sort of set the context. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one of them came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Neamathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised up their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted up their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. This time we'll call the kids down to the front for the children's sermon. Well, in the verses that we just read, we find something very interesting. Now, Job's friends have come to see him. They wanted to visit him because he was sad and he was sick. And they're going to talk with him and try to help him feel better. But our verse tells us something interesting. Now, everything the Bible says, it says because it's important. So when it gives us some unusual information, that's because it wants to draw our attention. Our verse tells us that the first thing they do is they wait seven days before they talk. Now, what do you call seven days? What's that called? Yeah, a week. You got it. A week. Now, where did the idea of a week come from? It came from God. He created the whole world in six days and rested on the seventh. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that God was tired. It means he stopped his work. He had finished it. Now, the Bible says that God gave this pattern for man to follow. We work six days and rest one. That's a week. God invented the week, and that's how we count time. Now, in the beginning, God made the seventh day to be the special holy day for worship. The seventh day is Saturday, but we worship on Sunday. Why? How did that change? When did it change? Who changed it? Those are all good questions. Now, there's a hint in the creation itself. Adam was created at the end of the sixth day. The Bible says that God created Adam and then he rested. And so that means that the first full day of Adam's life was the day of rest. It was the seventh day of the week, but it was the first day of Adam's life. So that's kind of a hint of what will happen later. But from then on, God's people always worshiped on the seventh day. But something happened, special happened, that changed the day for worship. Do you know what it was? Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. What's the first day of the week called? Sunday, that's right. Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. Now, all men come from Adam. All God's children come from Jesus. The first day of Adam's life was the seventh day, the day of rest. The first day of Jesus' new life after he rose from the dead was Sunday, the first day of the week. And ever since then, God's people have been meeting on Sunday to worship him. And Jesus taught this to his disciples. Many times after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to them while they were meeting to pray. And the Bible tells us that they were gathered on the first day of the week. And Jesus did this many times. It set a pattern for them to follow. And then 
Ten days after Jesus returned to heaven, his disciples were meeting to pray. And there was suddenly a great sound like a strong wind, and it startled everybody. Then there was a large fire that floated in the middle of the room in the air over their heads, and long like roots, like roots of a tree, arms stretched out and reached over the heads of all of Jesus' disciples. And when this happened, they all began to speak in languages that they had never learned. Now, what did that mean? It meant that God's church was growing. It was no longer just for Israel. It was for all men of every language of all nations. That day was kind of like the birthday of the church as we know it. No more temple, no more burning animal sacrifices, no more priests, no more altars. Jesus got rid of all those things. And by rising from the dead on Sunday, Jesus changed the day of worship. Now that day when all these miracles happened, the wind and the fire and the languages, that was a Sunday. And from then on, Christians have always met on Sunday to worship. God commands His people to worship Him on Sunday. Now think about this. God is kind. He doesn't command us to worship at church every day of the week, you know, six days, and just give us one day to do all of our work, and we have to cram everything into one day. He doesn't make us work and work and work and work and work and work with no rest. He gives us six days to do all of our work and all of our business, and He takes one day, just one day for Himself, and He gives us rest. Now, our day of rest and worship here at church, it's like being in heaven. When we get to heaven, it'll be a forever rest. We'll be able to praise and worship God all day, every day. Now, I want you to listen carefully to the rest of the sermon, because after we pray, you can go back to your seats. O Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll jump right into the outline this morning. Our outline is as follows. Number one, the Sabbath before Sinai. Number two, the Old Testament Sabbath after Sinai. And thirdly, the change of the Sabbath. First of all, the Sabbath before Sinai. Now, Back in June, we, we built an argument from the consistent language of Scripture that the sons of God that we read about in Job are men, men who are true worshipers of God. Two times in the first two chapters of Job, we find them gathered before God on a certain day. Now, that's a clear allusion to the Sabbath because what other day does Scripture ever speak of in which God's people gather before Him? The weekly Sabbath was known before the giving of the Ten Commandments. You know, God doesn't have to define it. You'll notice that in Exodus 20. He simply says, remember the Sabbath, and everybody knows what he's referring to. It was already an institution. The Sabbath is as old as creation. It's been in force ever since Eden. It was known to Adam and to the patriarchs. 
As I mentioned to the children, when God gives us what seems to be unusual information, it's for a reason. In Genesis 8, we read that Noah sends out a dove to see if it could find a place of rest. Important language there. And then after seven days, he sends out another one. This is a clear allusion to the Sabbath. Matthew Henry, the great 17th century Bible commentator, writes, Having kept the Sabbath with his little church, Noah expected special blessings. Now, if Noah observed the Sabbath, we must assume that Job did too. Now, in the days of the patriarchs, seven days is a standard unit of time. We find it mentioned everywhere. Now, what else could be the source of such a standard but God's ordaining of the weekly Sabbath? Throughout Genesis, for instance, we'll find seven as a standard period of time for feasting for fasting, for mourning. So it comes as no surprise when we read in Job 2.13 that Job and his friends sat quiet for seven days. They honored the Sabbath before they launched into the great soul work of treating Job's condition. Later in chapter 7, Job speaks of a time appointed for man to work. That's an indication of his knowledge of the Sabbath. He knew that there was a set time for work and for rest. Now, in Hebrews 4, verse 3, Paul quotes Psalm 95, 11, which reads, They shall never enter into my rest. And that verse refers to Exodus 20, 38, where God promises to sift the unbelievers out of His church so that only the obedient enter the rest of Canaan. Now, that notion, the notion of the obedient entering rest, is clearly known and understood by Job. In Job 20, 20, We read of the disobedient not being granted rest. And in Job 20, verse 21, which we've read multiple times already in this series, it speaks of rest granted to the obedient. Now, our second point, the the Old Testament Sabbath. The Sabbath is first described in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. God rested on the seventh day of creation. He blessed that day and set it apart. The Sabbath was ordained as a weekly commemoration of the first creation. That's an important fact to know and to understand. In its original institution, the Sabbath is part of God's eternally binding moral law. That's the first thing we should remember. God didn't ordain the Sabbath as part of Israel's rituals or the ceremonies that were to pass away with the death of Christ. It's put in the moral law. Now, there are two stories in the Old Testament which best display God's regard for the Sabbath. The first we talked about back at the beginning of the year was the manna. God sent the manna every day, except the Sabbath. Leftover manna spoiled overnight, except on the night before the Sabbath. God suspended the laws of nature in deference to His moral law in order to preserve the authority of the moral law. The second story is in Numbers 15. A man is found gathering firewood on the Sabbath, and God commands that the man be put to death, and the man was promptly executed. 
Now, it is important to realize how God utilized the Sabbath in the religious life of the Old Testament church. Many of Israel's feasts were placed on the Sabbath. God utilized a day that was already set aside to be used for special religious services. You know, 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. God does not burden us. He gives us a full six days out of seven, that's 85.7% of each week for our own business. God's procedure of using the Sabbath for special feasts essentially created, though, two kinds of Sabbaths. And it is important to realize this. There's the original creation Sabbath. And then there were the Sabbaths, which were part of the abrogated ceremonial laws. It's sort of the religious equivalent of overlapping two highways, right? Two roads need to pass through the same general area, so we merge one road onto the other for a short distance. And once they pass whatever forced them to merge, they separate again. That little overlap of 50 and 52 south of Tabor is a good example. There was the original Sabbath. And rather than fill Israel's calendar with a bunch of additional burdensome religious days, God overlapped on top of what they already had. And because people don't realize this, then they don't know how to classify the Sabbath. Is it part of the abrogated ceremonies of the Old Testament? Or is it part of God's eternally binding moral law? And this will turn to answer in our third point, which is the change of the Sabbath. What do we say about the change of the Sabbath from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week? How did that occur? What grounds is the change based on? On whose authority was it done? Well, we can't say that God abrogated it like He abrogated the dietary laws of the Old Testament. The Sabbath is part of the moral law. The moral law is eternally binding. And you'll see here that God knows human nature. He knows that it is in our worship of Him that we're most prone to go astray and make excuses for our sins. And that's why the two commandments, the second and the fourth, the ones about worship, the form of worship, and the day of worship, in those commandments, He covers all the bases. It's enough to say, you shall not steal. But when He says, remember the Sabbath, He has to add a ton of clarifications. God knows that if we can find a loophole, we'll exploit it. Now, the cause for the change of the Sabbath, as we said, was the resurrection of Christ. And I suspect that there are many Christians around the world who are not aware of that. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was a commemoration of the first creation. God labored six days and rested on the seventh day, thus setting a pattern for His people. Honoring the Sabbath is an integral part of covenant-keeping. Because by it, you identify yourself with God's creative works. He worked six days, rested one, so do you. The Christian Sabbath, or rather the Lord's Day, commemorates the new creation, which has its origin in Christ's resurrection. We mentioned this with the children earlier. The first full day of Adam's life was the very first Sabbath day. Genesis 1.27 reads, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created He him, male and female, He created them. Verses 28 to 30 contain instructions to this man God has just created. And then verse 31 says, God saw everything that He had made, 
And behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Immediately after creating Adam, God rested. And so the very first full day of Adam's life was the Sabbath. Now that's a significant fact, and it is a hint, a foreshadowing, if you will, of what's to come. In similar fashion, the first day of Christ's resurrected life as the second Adam was the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day. Now, first of all, let's just consider how monumental of a change this is. It's a complete renovation of the week, the basic building block of time. Now, you will search in vain for any scriptures which grant the church this kind of power. The rallying cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the source of all our doctrine and practice. God never leaves any details of His worship up to us. And that's a principle woven throughout the Bible. Like God gave Moses extremely detailed instructions for building the temple or the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, right? Detail upon detail about detail about the size and the materials of candlesticks, altars, tables, spoons, shovels, wash pots. God stipulated how many pieces of canvas the tabernacle is to be made of, how many grommets in each piece of the canvas, what the grommets are to be made of. God is so particular about His worship that He Himself drew up the blueprint. And then in Exodus 25, 40, God says to Moses, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern I showed you in the mountain. Now we derive a principle from this. God doesn't grant to the church or to her officers the authority to make changes in His worship. If a change takes place, it must only because He commanded it. And therefore, the basis for the change from the seventh day to the first day must be found in the teaching of Christ Himself. Christ must be the source of this change. It's very important that we make that as clear as possible. If we accept any other explanation, we're accepting a man-made innovation to God's worship. Not only would that be a violation of the fourth commandment, it'd be a violation of the second commandment. Now, one thing we know for certain is that the early Christians met on the first day of the week. Revelation 1.10 calls it the Lord's Day. John penned those words, but those words are God's words. God Himself calls it the Lord's Day. The resurrection of Jesus took place on the first day of the week. All four Gospels tell us that. Scripture also gives us some strangely specific details about Jesus' appearances after His resurrection. Several times we find it said, after eight days, Jesus appeared again to His disciples. The significance of that is that His open fellowship with them occurred on the eighth day, that is to say, the first day of the week. And it will always say, Jesus appeared again. So He has repeatedly appeared to them on the eighth day, the first day of the week. And He did it multiple times to set a pattern. And he said to them, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. And then he appears to them in their midst repeatedly on the first day of the week. More importantly, the New Testament form of the church was established on the day of Pentecost. So when Jesus said, it is finished, he was ending the Old Testament. 
All of the ceremonies are done and gone forever. He abrogated them by fulfilling them. They served a purpose at the time, pointing forward to his coming. But after he came, they were no longer needed. You don't need hints or clues when you already know the answer. The most noteworthy aspect of Pentecost in Acts 2 is the foreign languages. God miraculously gave the apostles the ability to speak in languages that they had never learned. Now, that gift wasn't permanent, right? It was a specific miracle that fulfilled a very specific set of prophecies from the Old Testament, the most notable of which is Isaiah 28.11. Now, the context is a coming judgment upon apostate Israel. They had had prophet after prophet after prophet come to them, and they'd ignored them all. And so God says, I'll speak to this people in foreign tongues. Now, that prophecy doesn't stand alone. It harkens back to Deuteronomy 48, 29. Now, Deuteronomy 28, sort of the the national anthem of the Old Testament church, contains all of the blessings and curses of the covenant. Blessings for faithfulness, curses for unfaithfulness. And one of the curses listed is hearing the word of God in a language you can't understand. It's God's way of saying, you had my word and you disregarded it. Now you're going to hear it and not understand it. I'm taking it away from you and giving it to someone else who speaks a language you don't understand. I mean, that's the significance of Jonah's mission to Nineveh. Non-Israelites were going to hear the word of God. Pentecost changed the form of the church. It changed it from an ethnically Jewish form to a universal form. It changed it from a localized form tied to the temple in Jerusalem to a spiritual form where the worshipers themselves are the temple. And that wherever two or three of them are gathered, Christ is there. God took the kingdom away from ethnic Israel and gave it to the true offspring of Abraham, his children by faith. In Matthew 21, verse 43, Jesus tells the Jews of his day that the kingdom of God is being taken away from them. Two chapters later, Matthew 23, Jesus says, your house is left to you desolate. Now, God had warned them that when they heard God's word in a language they couldn't understand, the jig was up. The kingdom of God was being taken away, and they were being judged to desolation. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Luke tells us the disciples stood up and began to speak in the languages of the far-flung corners of the Roman Empire, and the people in Jerusalem were scratching their heads, perplexed, going, aren't all these guys Galileans? How come they're speaking these different languages? We don't understand them. Now, Pentecost itself, the, the feast, was a harvest feast. It was a celebration of the gathering in of that year's crops. This New Testament day of Pentecost in Acts 2 fulfilled that symbolism by being the first ingathering of souls into the newly organized New Testament church. Now, the final feature of the day of Pentecost is found in its institution in Leviticus 23. Now, in the Old Testament, it was called the Feast of Weeks. So, week of weeks. A week is seven days. A week of weeks is 49 days. The next day is the 50th, and that's where the word Pentecost comes from, 50. That's when it was observed. The New Testament church was founded on the day after the Old Testament Sabbath. The Old Testament era of the church ended, and the New Testament era began right there. 
God began gathering children unto Abraham from the nations on Pentecost. Pentecost was on a Sunday, the day after the Old Testament Sabbath. This perpetuated the pattern that Jesus had set by rising from the dead on Sunday, appearing to his disciples on Sundays when they were gathered together in his name on the day of the week in which he raised, rose from the dead, he was there in their midst. And then he inaugurated the New Testament form of his church on Sunday. So in Acts 20, for instance, Paul is in Troas, and this is way over on the west coast of modern-day Turkey, and we read that the disciples gathered together to break bread. That's the most common New Testament uh, synonym for Christian worship. And verse 7 tells us that they gathered on the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul's giving instructions for a benevolent fund collection, and he says that they should take up this collection whenever they meet. When do they meet? Verse 2 says, on the first day of every week. So we see the first day of the week honored as the day of worship during the days of the apostles. These Christians were taught to do this by the apostles themselves. If Christ had never taught this to his disciples, they would have corrected this practice. The New Testament epistles are proof of this. Every one of the epistles addresses some error of doctrine or practice within the congregation to whom the letter is addressed. If these Christians were meeting on Sunday, contrary to Jesus' teachings, that error would have been addressed and corrected in one of the epistles. And so we know for certain that the apostles taught these newly formed Christian churches to meet on Sunday. This, they taught them this by the express command of Jesus. Acts 1 verse 3 tells us that, after his resurrection, Jesus remained with his disciples for 40 days, during which period he taught them many things concerning the kingdom of God. So it was during this period that Jesus taught his disciples to worship on the first day of the week instead of the seventh. Because we know that the disciples never so much as lifted a finger apart from Christ's command. In Revelation, John pronounces a curse on anyone who adds to the words of the New Testament. And in that same book, Revelation 1, verse 10, John speaks of the Lord's Day, and he doesn't need to explain what it is. Everybody already knows. The change of the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first came by Christ's own institution. Jesus commanded his disciples to meet on that day. They taught this to all of the churches they founded, not based on human authority, but on the authority of Christ himself. And then in Matthew 28, Jesus said, teach all the nations to observe that which I commanded you. So, Either Christ commanded the apostles in regard to the Lord's day, or they went way beyond their commission by teaching something Jesus never commanded. And since they were personally commissioned by Christ, whenever they acted in their public role as apostles, their practice must be considered the norm, the pattern for all ages. And their pattern was to worship on Sunday. When Jesus changed the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first, he stripped it of all of its Jewish significance, all of its association with the religious ceremonies of the Old Testament was ripped away, and what was left was its original significance, rest. Now, I'd like to say a few things by way of application. The first table of the law is where all sin begins. That's why God adds so many clarifiers to the second and fourth commandment. 
the authority of the second table is derived from the first table. We want loopholes in the commandments of the first table because these are the commandments which address our duties to God. Getting off the hook with our fellow man is easy if we've already gotten off the hook with God. No one transgresses his neighbor's rights without having first transgressed God's rights. It's as simple as that. The Old Testament Jewish significance of the Sabbath is gone forever. It was fulfilled by Christ. But the original creation significance of it remains in the Lord's day. And thus its binding nature remains as well. Hebrews 4.9 clearly says, There therefore remains a rest for the people of God. Rest, the Greek word is sabbatismos. A Sabbath observance remains for the people of God. Jesus abolished the seventh day Jewish Sabbath, but he didn't abolish the weekly observance of a rest. He changed the day of the week. He stripped, of it, stripped it of its former Jewish significance. So when Jesus cried, it, it is finished, he meant it. Everything pertaining to the old administration is gone. We don't need shadows because we have the substance. It's no longer the Sabbath of Israel, it's the Lord's Day. We don't have to call it the Sabbath, in fact, we probably shouldn't. We should call it the Lord's Day because that's what Jesus instituted. Using Old Testament words or Hebrew terms doesn't make our, our Christianity more authentic. Lugging in Jewish terms and Old Testament practices doesn't improve our Christian faith, it debases it. In fact, it puts us in danger. This was the most common error faced by the churches that were founded by the apostles. Throughout the book of Acts, we find the apostles battling the Judaizers. Now, these people were telling the new Christians, you know, all your Jesus stuff is good, but you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the dietary laws. Your food should be labeled kosher. You need to observe Jewish holidays. And people still do stuff like this, you know. The Adventists claim that we must meet on Saturday instead of Sunday. Some of them won't eat pork or shellfish. Some people insist on calling God Yahweh or calling Jesus Yeshua as if that makes their brand of religion more authentic. Now, the apostles cursed this as a great evil. Read Galatians if you doubt me. In no uncertain terms, Paul pronounces the curse of God upon Judaizers. Now, all that said, the moral authority of the day of rest still stands. Why would any Christian have the panache or, or you know, gall to claim that the commandments against theft, adultery, murder, or perjury are no longer binding? Right? Would anyone say that idolatry is okay now under the New Testament? Why should we imagine that if the first, second, third, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments are eternally binding, that the fourth has somehow been magically done away with? You know, I, no one has ever accused me of legalism or of trying to earn my salvation because I refrain from adultery and murder. But I have been accused of legalism for asserting with the churches, the Christians throughout the ages, that the Lord's Day is morally binding upon the people of God as a sign of His covenant. The fourth commandment was not abrogated. Its day of observance and its name were changed. Jesus moved it from the seventh day to the first day, and He changed its name from Sabbath to the Lord's Day. You know, when I was a kid, no businesses in my hometown were open on the Lord's Day, except maybe a gas station. Most people in town, even the non-churchgoers, thought that that was disrespectful. Nowadays, very few businesses are closed on the Lord's Day. In fact, the hottest business-related controversies of the last decade have been about places like Michael's and Chick-fil-A for being closed on Sunday. Ah, religious bigots. 
Years ago, being open on Sunday was controversial and frowned upon. Now, being closed on Sunday is controversial and frowned upon. Nowadays, there's more business conducted, especially in the fields of entertainment and recreation on Sunday than on weekdays. And you just have to ask, has that improved our nation's life? Have our communities benefited from it? Ask church boards if life is better. Has removing God from the center of the community's life made things better? Again, ask church boards. Now, I know that people tire of hearing the law of God read week after week. But we should realize the purpose of this practice. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is why it has always been the practice of Reformed churches to read the law in public worship. Week after week, it exposes us to God's holy standard. We are reminded of what He requires of us. His righteous character is presented to us for us to worship and wonder and love. The more we worship, the more we wonder at, the more we love the holiness of God, the more we'll hate sin. If we routinely and habitually neglect the Lord's Day, then we aren't being exposed to God's holiness. And nothing good can come from that. This is why David cries, Oh, how I love thy law. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Hebrews 4.10 says, For he who has entered his rest has also ceased from his works as God did from his. The Lord's Day signifies rest. Rest from sin. Rest from the things of this world. Rest from trying to earn salvation. And therefore, the Lord's day is a foretaste of heaven. If you cannot and do not enjoy the rest of the Lord's day, say what you will. Heaven has nothing for you. You wouldn't enjoy it. Eternal life isn't something that we have to wait till after we die to attain. We have begun to live it already. When I rest from my evil works and the Lord's Spirit works in me, what does our catechism say? I am already in this world experiencing the eternal Sabbath of the world to come. My death is just a speed bump along the way. In heaven, I will continue the fellowship with God that I've enjoyed here on earth. And if I can't enjoy fellowship with God now on earth, heaven has nothing to offer me. Let us pray.